Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Grieving with Hope. This week, members of our church family, um, Marcus and Jordan, uh, lost their unborn child. Um, I'm thankful for their willingness to share that publicly. That means they don't grieve alone. And it has been, it's been a year with a great deal of loss. There's, there's probably a great deal of loss that you might know about that's been made public. You also need to know that there is heartache that doesn't get shared publicly. There's always more heartache than what you know is going on. And so what I want to do this morning is preach a sermon that is in one sense a follow-up message to the truth that we looked at two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we considered the truth from Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors in Christ. And we spent the time trying to apply this deeply to the reality of our own death. That the hope of what Christ has accomplished, the assurance that we have for those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, that we have the assurance of kingdom to come, eternal life, that this means that we lose the terror of our death if we will apply this. Hope is the identity of all of those who are in Christ. But in that message, I I would have liked to included more. There's more I wanted to say that's usually the case, just not enough time. I would have liked to have included a message on the reality of grief, on the reality of sorrow living in a cursed world. If, If we don't do that, it's possible for us to get out of balance. Um, I I had been a Christian for 27 years before I learned a couple truths from the word. And you know, a truth hits you hard when you could remember where you were, what you were doing when you learned that truth. I can remember learning these couple of truths, reading a a couple of sermons and just looking up from the book and thinking to myself, I wish I had had these truths long ago. I find in pastoral counseling that this is an area that in our culture, I think probably because we're so estranged from death and all the things that we've discussed about ways we hide from death's reality, largely in our culture, we don't know how to grieve. We don't know how to think of grief. We don't know how to think of sorrow. And so this sermon is to that end. I've I've, I've prayed that it will be useful to you. Let, Let me say this, at some point, The truths that we're going to look at, they are going to be the medicine that you need. Sometimes when we look at certain certain truths, you know, we we teach kids in the schools and I've got an eighth grade class. And sometimes when I teach eighth graders about fatherhood and motherhood, okay, which you got to do. You got to prepare them before they get there rather than wait till after they're already fathers and mothers. But I can see in their faces sometimes as I'm beginning a, 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 a Bible study on fatherhood and motherhood that there's a little bit of a look like that's a really long way away. Do I really need that now? And part of the message is it's coming quicker than you think it is. And I, and I say the same thing when it comes to grief and sorrow and distress of your heart. At some point, you're going to hurt in a way that makes it, makes it seem like you will not recover. At some point, you are going to have grief and sorrow that feels like a weight on your chest that will not let up. And it's probably coming sooner than you think it is. God's word has a great deal to say in this matter, and, and at some point, We need to see what it says. So this message is to this end. Let's look to the text and then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. First Thessalonians chapter four, please start in verse 13 there with me. But we do not want you to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep, 
Pause there. That is the Bible's word for believers who die in the Lord. Those who physically die in the Lord asleep because they will raise again so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you will feed us with your word. I ask God that you will shepherd our souls. I ask that you will teach us and show us your truths and give us, give us answers, give us substance. Father, I, I pray that you'll bless this time. I, I, I ask that you'll remove all the distractions. I ask God that you would give our hearts just captivated attention uh, to you and your truths and your word. And I ask, Father, that this will serve your people. Uh, Father, you have provided for us in your word. There's a whole doctrine on these truths. I ask God that we will be able to see it today. Help me in all the work it's, it's necessary in, in rightly teaching and being useful. So, Father, I, I pray accomplish many, many things and bless us as we hear. Bless us as we receive. I pray we will worship. And I, I ask God for some who are in grief that you will heal. I pray for some others who maybe have had grief in their past, but maybe never healed in the way that you want us to. I, I pray that this will be useful to them. But Lord, for others who will grieve in the future, I pray, show us the worldview, show us the doctrine, give us the answers, O oh Lord, that help us to be able to handle these things in a way that honors you. So please bless this time. We pray it and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years back, Carl Truman wrote an article titled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And part of the point of his article is that as he observed hip Christianity, that oftentimes hip Christianity only sings and only writes happy and even trite songs. And so what happens when a miserable Christian needs to lift up a mournful song to the Lord to give voice of their sorrows? Uh, there's a time for happy songs. We're not against that. I like a lot of them. But when that's all that is produced, what happens when the people of God are in distress and they have a need, a yearning to fellowship with God and to voice their hearts? A couple weeks ago when we studied the message that we did on death and the hope that we have, um, I mentioned some of our family struggles. I hope you don't count me narcissistic to go back to that and speak personally again. When our family was going through that season, there was some of this initial shock and sorrow and distress of sort of recovering from what immediately happened. But the distress, the anxiety, the sorrow didn't let up because a couple of doctors that we were seeing were telling us that they believed that Tara had a heart condition which would kill her. One of the doctors told me to get an AED and get ready to bring her back after she dies, which created an incredible amount of anxiety and distress. And in that season, my soul just had an insatiable need to sing. But I found that a, a lot of the hymns and songs that I normally love they were like an unripe persimmon in my mouth. Just happy melodies disgusted me. Even driving down the road and, and just listening to the radio, uh, just when a, when a song would come on that I normally liked, but if it had a kind of happy, happy melody to it, I, I just had to turn it off. I just couldn't handle it. My, my soul needed to cry out to God. And so the hymn, What Wondrous Love Is This?, what wondrous love is this? Lifting up those lines with its soothing tune was medicine for my soul. And I think that helps us understand the preciousness of the Psalms. That, that in the Bible, God gave us, God gave us a song book. 
He gave us a song book that regardless of the circumstances we are going through, that there is this book that teaches us how to, how to worship and have fellowship with God, regardless of what it is that's going on. You know, a new Christian who's not yet been through deep suffering may read through the Psalms and just, I don't, do you remember the first time you read through it? I didn't get it. You know, a new Christian reading through is just kind of like, that's kind of morbid. We read Psalm 137 this morning, had a pretty shocking verse in there about the judgment and justice of God. But for suffering saints who are still putting pressure on bleeding wounds, the Psalms are bread and breath. And spiritual giants from history, and, and you don't become one of those without deep suffering, they say that in their times of turmoil, the Psalms were their life. The Psalms aren't the only place where suffering saints draw strength. R really, your first trip through the Bible, if you're a brand new Christian, and over the course of that next year, one of the things that might shock you, there's a lot that would shock you. The Bible is different than what people think it is. But it has a lot of sorrow. And one of the places that many believers uh, draw strength from and, 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 and find, find friends, you know what I mean? Just some of these biographies and they find biblical heroes that are their friends in their grief. Is that so many of our biblical heroes had seasons of time where they prayed to God and they, they expressed their desire. I don't want to live anymore. Like Elijah, fleeing as he was being hunted down and fled to the mountain and he prayed and told the Lord, I'm all alone. I, I'm in this. I don't even desire to live anymore. To suffering saints, the realism of the Bible is substance and life. It's medicine for the soul. You know that empty, always smiling shallow, cheesy religion where we only sing happy, trite songs and we pretend that the Christian life is always, you know, just feeling the blessing of God. You're, you're eventually going to stop being entertained by it. And eventually your soul needs substance. Eventually your soul needs to, needs to meet with David as he's in the wilderness and he goes and strengthens himself in the Lord and cries out to God. The Bible's dark places resonate with the sorrowful. And the Psalms are especially the place in the Bible that give voice to our deepest emotions. Listen, you were designed as a worshiping creature. You were created with the need to worship and fellowship with God. You can't change that. You can't stop that. The only thing you can change is who you worship and what you fellowship with. Those who deny the Lord Jesus, refuse to turn to him for salvation, they worship something. They have fellowship with some creation, just not God. For those who believe on the Lord Jesus and are in Christ, the worship and fellowship with God, it, it is our life. But what that looks like in the various circumstances of life is different. In times of gladness, worship and fellowship with God may look like the song of Moses. You remember this on the day when the Egyptian army was pursuing Israel and they were in incredible distress and God brought them through the Red Sea and then Israel turns around to look back as the Egyptian army is following them and they see God close the waters over on top and they sing the song of Moses. Remember, Miriam goes out with the tambourines and leads the women of Israel to sing and dance a song of deliverance and joy. But how you fellowship with God in distress is different. The Psalms contain a number of, a surprising number of dark, sorrowful laments. I, I appreciate Craig's introduction before he read a Psalm of lament. There by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept and our tormentors demanded we sing songs of Jerusalem. Why is it that the Psalms have so many laments? There's even a category. There's an entire category of Psalms we call the Psalms of lament. Why, why is this? God has inspired scripture to be written to help you give voice 
to your sorrows and some of them anxieties and some of them gladness. But you have a need to give voice to God of your hurts. You have a need to pray mournful prayers and sing sorrowful songs in grief and in distress. And so I want to spend some time this morning considering what the Bible has to say on this subject and about how to heal. I've got three points that I want to walk through. This is a topical sermon, not an expositional one. Just took a group uh, last weekend uh, uh, to a teaching preaching workshop. We talked about the difference between expositional and, and uh, topical preaching. It is our normal diet that we uh, do expositional preaching, but maybe one or two a year topical sermons today is one of those. So three points that I want to walk through first. Grief is not ungodly. <laughs> Secondly, grief needs processed and expressed. And then thirdly, healing is righteous and good. So number one, grief is not ungodly. Let's look at our text again, 1 Thessalonians 4 there. If you notice in verse 13, uh, Paul is addressing believers who have had loved ones in Christ who have died. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as the rest. And what he's getting at there is you will not grieve as the world because they are those who have no hope. There is a misunderstanding that comes sometimes. There's a misunderstanding that comes sometimes that thinks, I know that if my faith were bigger and I were really spiritual, then nothing would ever upset me and I would never have grief. I know that if I were really spiritual and mature, that I, I would never mourn when loved ones die because I would see it just exactly how I'm supposed to see it. That misunderstanding comes from... Um, a misunderstanding of some of the truths that we looked at a couple weeks ago when we talked about the sermon on death and the hope that we have and that there is the reality that for those who have turned to Christ for salvation, what Christ has accomplished in securing our eternal life does mean that we approach our death differently and tragedy and suffering and afflictions, we approach it differently from them. And, and, and it is true that it is the reality that uh, our hope takes away the terror of our death. But it is unbiblical to think that as Christians, we should never have sorrow over loss. First Thessalonians 4 recognizes that Christians will grieve. It recognizes that Christians will grieve, but what it calls us to is to grieve differently. To grieve in the fact that, in, in a way that makes light, makes light of the fact that we have hope in Christ. The Bible never tells us to, not to grieve. What it does do is to tell us not to grieve like the world does. Because the fact is, the Bible is filled <coughs> filled with accounts of righteous people grieving. Most importantly being, in John eleven thirty five, 35, we have the shortest verse in the entire Bible. Do you remember what it is? Jesus comes to the tomb of his friend, his friend Lazarus, who has died. And as Jesus walks up to the tomb and he is with the family weeping, he comes to the grave there. And, and then John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. Your Lord, the one who came as a model of righteousness so that we would imitate his life, he grieved over the loss of his friend. His friend, a man that he loved, passed through what is the curse's worst effect that it has on believers, physical death. You know, one of the things that is amazing about that passage is that Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. It, it's a point that is often um, made whenever you, you look at a study on that passage. Jesus comes there to the tomb in order to raise Jesus, excuse me, in order to raise Lazarus from the dead, there is about to be a happy thing that happens, but still yet Jesus wept over the reality of death and the heartache that the curse has brought to this world. And do you see kind of the pattern there? Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead, but still the fact has happened that there has been heartache and loss and Jesus wept. There's a model there for us. 
For we who are in Christ, we are confident that our loved ones who have died in the Lord, and we do specify this, those who have trusted in Christ, we're confident they will raise again in the resurrection to come, but it is still a reality. Their sorrow because there has been loss. On a number of occasions, Jesus wept over lost people. Now, let, let's make clear, Jesus wept over things that matter. That needs to be said as well. Uh, you grieve when you lose something that you love. Okay, you love money, love money. When you lose money, you'll have grief, but it's not worth that affection. But Jesus wept over things that matter. Jesus wept and made lamentation over the city of Jerusalem. Do you remember that? Whenever he, he stood on the hill and he, he looked up at the city that he was about to come to for that final time. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you to myself, but you would not have it. That, that's a lament. And he wept over the city. Do you remember that phrase used of the Messiah in Isaiah 53? that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so let's, let's make clear because this is one misunderstanding. We'll look at other misunderstandings, but here is one misunderstanding. Grief and sorrow over things that are worthy, that is not ungodly. We're gonna learn later that mourning is not to become our identity, but grief is not ungodly. Now, secondly, Grief needs to be processed and expressed. When heartache comes from losing a loved one, sometimes the fearful idea can enter the mind. I'm never going to get over this. I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. And it doesn't help that we all probably know somebody who hasn't processed their grief well, hasn't made use of the grace that God gives, and they did live in despair for the rest of their days. But for the Christian, if we make use of the grace that God offers, this will not be the case for us. Um, I'm going to flip over to 2 Corinthians 1, and you can join me there if you like. In 2 Corinthians um, 1, in verse three, uh, actually in the entire passage there, it, you can do an entire study and notice truths and points that are made about suffering, affliction, and comfort in the midst of that. But if you notice verse three, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Um, by the way, before I comment on those verses, if you look over in verses eight and nine as well, you'll notice that Paul is referring to a time that they endured some tremendous afflictions and difficulty. Uh, he says, we were burdened excessively. Uh, he says that it was beyond our strength. Throw away the coffee mug that says God will never give you more than you can handle. He says it was beyond our strength. The sentence of death was passed within us. But Paul was someone who knew grief, who knew distress and knew sorrow. But he says there in verses three through five that God gives comfort to his people. He says, we are sharers in the sufferings of Christ. Meaning if you are in Christ, you are going to suffer. Jesus suffered and he says, you follow me, you take up your cross, there's going to be suffering as well. We are sharers in that. But what he also says is that we share in the comfort that God gives. N know that in grief, God is offering comfort and he's, he's pushing it your direction. The Holy Spirit who is inside of God's people is influencing and working to bring us to comfort. But there's a, there's a weird thing that happens. You know, we're, we're not logical creatures, okay? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful, desperately sick. Who can understand it? We, we just do things that don't make sense a lot of times, one of those is that it is possible in times of bitterness. Have you ever gotten angry and you kind of wanted to stay angry? The same thing can happen in despair. 
The same thing can happen in sadness and in grief. There are times where the flesh wants to resist healing, just wants to stay and wallow in grief. And so understand that healing takes effort. I think to say it more uh, accurately, God offers grace and we must work in cooperation with the grace that he offers in, in order to come to the healing that he wants us to have. But he offers healing. He wants you to heal. But healing is a process and a process that takes time. Those emotions that flood your heart in extreme grief, that, that chronic sadness that lies like a weight on your chest, be assured that if you make use of the grace that God offers, it will digress. You will come to life and joy again. The process of grief will be neither easy nor impossible, but God offers comfort. In scripture, we have many places where we see the people of God grieving, lamenting, and mourning. Think of Job sitting in ashes with his head shaved. Think of uh, Jacob mourning the loss of his son, Joseph, and he, he sits and pours ashes on his lap. But probably the clearest place is the Psalms. We mentioned that category of Psalms, the Psalms of lament. And you, you notice when you think about it, it's kind of weird that this is a universal thing, isn't it? L laments. Every culture on the earth, all across different nations and such, they all have uh, ver various uh, sad, mournful songs that exist. There's a reason why the blues and sad country songs remain popular for, for decades and things. It's, it's because there's something there that resonates with our soul, something there that we need. And so why is this? Why is it that scripture includes so many dark laments? It's because we need them. It's because we need them. When you're overcome with joy, you, you've gotten some great news. You're, you're getting married, you find out you're pregnant. What's one of the first things you wanna do? You wanna go tell somebody. Why? Because joy is not complete until joy is expressed. There's something similar that goes on when it comes to sorrow. That our soul has a need to voice these things to God, to have fellowship with God in this. And so God in the Bible has given us scripture to instruct us and to give us language, language to use as we fellowship with God. So let, let me show you some of these. If you wanna jump to the book of Psalms with me, um, I'm gonna just walk through some of them, show you some of these Psalms of lament. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'll just kind of make mention of some things. Uh, jump to Psalm 12 though, if you're gonna follow along. I mentioned earlier, Psalm 137 is one of these. Uh, I'll, I'll do some in a chronological order though. Psalm 12 um, is a Psalm of lament. If you notice, as you look at it there, how does it begin? Help, O Lord. Help, O Lord. That, that's kind of a whole category of Psalms, that there are a bunch of them where the worshiper is in distress and cries out to God asking for grace to come and deliver. You notice there he continues, help, O Lord, for the, for the godly man ceases to be, the faithful disappear from among the sons of, of men. The people of God are being uh, rooted out there. There is a, a strong statement of trust in the Lord in that Psalm, there is an anticipation that says, Lord, I, I know you will come and you will give grace. So, so hang on to that. The very next one, Psalm 13 is another Psalm of lament. Notice how this one begins. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That is another common pattern in a lot of the, the Psalms of lament. There is this crying out and asking God, how long will we live in this distress? Will you forget me forever? It is not that the worshiper has been forgotten. The people of God are never forgotten. But are there times where it seems that way? Yes. Are there times where in distress we pray and pray and pray and pray and it seems like God is neglecting? He's not. But are there times where it seems that way? Yes. 
and the worshipers cry out. God's people are suffering and they, and they cry out. Now, one thing to notice about this as well, which comes up and it instructs us again about how we worship and how we fellowship with God. You'll see this in a lot of the Psalms. They ask God questions. It is entirely appropriate to ask God questions in our praying. Now, we need to say more about that. We all know that there is an evil way to question God. And what we mean when we say it like that is to question his authority. There, there is an evil way to be angry and bitter at God and to say, why me, Lord? As if I deserve nothing but riches. As if he is being cruel to me if I go through difficulty and I'm questioning his providence like, you got it wrong here. That is evil. But listen to me very carefully. And this, this opens up a whole new world to our praying. In humility... In submission to the will of God, it is appropriate and we are encouraged to ask God questions. Why, Lord? Why is this happening? We're not promised that he will give answers. It may be that after five, 10 minutes of Bible reading, you come to an answer, a light bulb goes off and there's some realization. But we are encouraged to ask God questions. You notice that Psalm 13, look at verses five and six, ends with a word of hope. I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So it begins with sorrow and it ends with hope. So kind of pay attention to that sometimes is the case. Psalm 44. Psalm 44 states the fact that God no longer goes out with them into battle. It's one of those times that God was giving them over to their enemies as an act of judgment on the nation. That one is a corporate lament. So some are individual lament, personal lament. Some are corporate lament. He's praying on behalf of the whole nation. Lord, you no longer go out with us into battle. God had been giving them over into judgment. But, but track this, the people who love God, the people who worship and honor and obey God, they are in distress over this. And so they cry out. They give voice to their sorrows and they, they ask God for help. Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is one of the darkest of Psalms in all of the 150 that we have. If you read through Psalm 88, you'll notice that it is one of the only Psalms that we have that does not have a strong, clear statement of hope and confidence in God. Because listen, most of the Psalms of lament, kind of the pattern is the worshiper cries out to God, but then reasons within himself, the, the Lord is righteous, the Lord is good, he will give help, I, I will see the Lord, and he, he encourages himself with the hope that he has. Psalm 88 is different. Psalm 88 is one of those from the perspective of someone who is in the deepest pits of sorrow and he doesn't yet see the hope that exists. In the whole Psalm, there's not a clear statement of hope. Now, there is some hope in the passage. If we were to study out it out entirely in verses 10 through 12, he asks the question, do the departed spirits uh, praise you? Well, in the new covenant, now that a whole lot more about eternity has been revealed, we know, yes, God was giving pointers to the hope of the gospel. But Haman, the, the man who wrote Psalm 88, he didn't see that entirely with clarity yet in the old covenant. But what is he doing in this Psalm? Over and over again, he is giving voice to God of his sorrows. He is crying out to God and asking for, uh, asking for help. Some of you, now you will notice, and this is another one to make note of as well. In some of the Psalms of Lament, the worshipers ask for help, and that makes sense to us. I, I need grace, please come give me grace. But in some of the other Psalms of Lament, they're not asking for help. They are just giving voice of their hurts to the Lord. That shows us something. That shows us that the whole point of it is not always just to get something. There are times where to fellowship with God, we need to cry out. 
uh, in Psalm 88. Notice verses uh, 13 and 14 there. I, O Lord, I have cried out to you for help. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? God had not actually hidden himself from Haman, but it seemed that way. And he cries out. You notice just some of the poetic language that goes throughout there. If towards the end, do you see the line, your terrors have surrounded me like water. You have removed lover and friend far from me. A great many of the psalms of lament are, are not so dark. So Psalm 88 would represent the worshiper who can't see the hope yet, can't see the light, just swallowed up by the darkness and doesn't see it and is just crying out. But there are some others like Psalm 42. It's one of my favorites. That's, that's the one that says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in despair? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. What's happening there in Psalm 42 is that the worshiper is able to see intellectually the hope that he has. He, he's able to see that, okay, there is, there is light, but his heart doesn't have hope yet. Remember how we've talked about the difference between just knowing some things in the head and then applying it deeply to the heart so that we experience hope and worship. Psalm 42 is the example of a worshiper who's trying to get there. He's trying to tell himself to get to this place that he, he needs to get to. Some of the other poetic lines from some of the Psalms, uh, just, just listen to some of them. Psalm 44, our soul has sunk down to the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Psalm 42, my tears have been my food day and night. Psalm 56, you have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Psalm 51. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. And then let me take you to one more that represents a, a lot of the Psalms. But this one represents where we're trying to get to. So Psalm 57, if you'll flip back there with me. Psalm 57, so kind of, kind of track some of the progression of what I'm saying here. Psalm 88 represents the worshiper who's in darkness and doesn't see the hope. Psalm 42 represents the worshiper who sees the hope, but it, it's not fully resonated yet. He's trying to apply it. He's trying to get his soul to that place of health. Psalm 57 represents the worshiper who is right there on the cusp trusting in the Lord and is, is calling his heart the rest of the way. Psalm 57, start there in verse one with me. He says, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. If you notice in verses four through six, he, no, he, he makes note of some of the sorrows of what's causing him to cry out for help. My soul is among lions. There's a poetic way to describe enemies surrounding wanting to rip him to pieces. But then notice verse seven. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake my glory. Do you see what he's doing? He's talking to himself. Come on. Get where you're supposed to be. There is hope. Put your eyes on the hope that you have. Come on, soul. Get where you're stop being so stubborn. Heart. Believe, trust, awake my glory, awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. So God has given us scripture to serve us, to shepherd us, to, to help us see how to process, how to express, how to pray, how to sing, how to think in the midst of these. We all know there are fleshly and sinful ways to approach grief, um, seeking to numb the pain. 
maybe through substance, maybe just through a whole bunch of TV and wasting the life, maybe through indulging ourselves by giving in to temptations and sins that we wouldn't normally, but sometimes in grief, the heart wants to give myself license, like the universe owes me, so... So I can indulge a little bit more right now. So some will fall to adultery or pornography in some of these kinds of times. There are ungodly ways to handle grief. But let me, let me mention here seven biblical things to do when your heart is filled with sorrow. All of these are modeled for us in the Bible. This isn't an exclusive list, but let me mention seven things the Bible shows to do when you are grieving and processing. And let me just one more quick note of introduction before I say that this list, you know, it, it might be a decade before you ever have some real extreme grief again. So if that's the case, you won't remember this list of seven. I'm hoping to encourage your heart and, you know, things get settled as foundations before you get there. But if you, if you write the list down, you might tuck it in the back of your Bible. And then when the day comes, when you do have great heartache, you might be able to pull out the list and, and recall some of these kinds of things. So here are seven biblical things that we're shown to do. Number one, voice to God, your hurts and sorrows, as we've mentioned. Let me also add, and I'm going to say it a couple times throughout these don't just know that you're supposed to pray and nod your head when you hear to pray. Praying hasn't happened unless we actually come away and pray. Voice to God your sorrows. Ask for help. I know it seems so incredibly simple. I know sometimes like that, it's kind of like, why does the preacher even say something so simple? Do you know why? Because a lot of times we don't actually do the simple things that we, we all know we're supposed to. We nod our heads being like, yeah, I know that. We have to do it. Voice to God. Let me, let me encourage you. We see it in the Psalms. Say to God what's been happening and cry out. He was my friend. He was my friend. And he's gone. Voice to God. Your sorrows and ask for help. Number two. Think long and deep about what has happened. Don't hide from it. Don't run from it. Don't fill your life with so many distractions that you don't come to full grips with what has happened. Now, of course, there, there is benefit in, in going and working and in time with loved ones to, as a helpful way to get your mind off of obsessing about it, because that's also a danger. But some face the temptation to just try to fill their life with so many things that they don't spend time thinking deeply and coming to grips with it. And if that happens, we don't heal. Um, James White, the great battling theologian, you know, real tough defender of the gospel. Um, he wrote a, a, a warm and tender little book um, called Grieving, Your Path Back to Peace. Um, let me give just a little parenthesis there. If you're involved in counseling at all, or you're just one of those people that you minister to people, which is a whole lot of the congregation, when you are talking with someone, you're trying to share the gospel or a, a believer who's going through these things. Let me encourage you, buy a copy of that, read it through, have a copy on hand to give to somebody when you don't know what to say. It is, it is an expression of, uh, of some kindness there, but there's a, here's a quote pertaining uh, for in that book pertaining to what we talk about. James White says, if we refuse to face our grief and engage in self-destructive behavior that denies the reality of what has taken place in our lives, it can, lead to ever, it can lead ever downward into despair, loneliness, and bitterness. Number three, talk to people who love you. You need to talk. This even goes for the quiet personalities. Listen, you don't got to talk to everybody, but you do need to talk to somebody. You might find that in grief that there's a whole lot of people pressing you that you don't want to talk to. You don't have to talk to everybody. But, but you do need to talk to somebody, somebody who loves you. And it is part of the processing, being able to have a conversation about it. Grief is not handled well alone. 
Sometimes there's the temptation of the flesh to isolate ourselves, or maybe I feel stupid about opening up, and maybe I know I'm going to cry if I have this conversation, so I don't want to do that. I'm going to feel stupid. Isolation often leads to despair. Folks who don't handle their grief well and come to a place of bitterness where they just hate happiness in general, one of the common commonalities um, is that they refused to talk to other people. They isolated themselves. Number four, mourn. I know that can sound like really obvious, so let me elaborate to tell you what I mean. What I mean is let yourself mourn properly. You ought not weep forever. And we ought not adopt mourning as an identity. But if you do not give adequate vent to your grief, we don't process and we don't heal. Listen, there is a time for sucking it up, but it's not immediately. It's not immediately. There is a time to grieve and, and let yourself grieve and, and buy some of this mourning and grief. What, what I mean is, have you noticed in the Bible how people did express their mourning? And have you, have you noticed that a lot of times it seems kind of dramatic? Like when you think about what some of the people in the Bible did when they were grieving, tear their clothing, shave their heads, rub ashes onto them, sit in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, funerals in the Bible would have wailing. They would wail all the way to uh, the, the graveside there. What, what were they doing? Listen, they were engaging in actions that expressed mourning. That's kind of become uncool in our culture. But again, our modern culture that doesn't handle death and grieving very well, we've kind of gotten rid of every single expression of grief, all except for one. You know, you're allowed to cry for a little bit. You know, that's about it. You know, and this isn't a call, you know, like here, the Bible says we all need to wail and do these kinds of things. A lot of these would be quite unnatural for us. But what but you do need to know, there is something to engaging in an action that expresses grief. There's a reason why funerals are important. There's a reason why a funeral ought to be done well. Bad funerals are a, have a stifling effect with people who need to be able to process through some things and grieve. There is something to to being able to express this. And so, and so look, um, I, I know that we do a, a fair amount of uh, laughing at ridiculousness going on in our culture and, you know, things like uh, universities coming up with safe spaces with stuffed animals and coloring books for students because they're facing the trauma of a stressful week of test. I laugh at that. I'm going to keep laughing at that. But don't misunderstand that to think that there's never actually a time for sorrow and grief and recovering from actual trauma and trying to make sense of it and coming to peace with these things. Number five, sing, sing. It is a shame that in our culture, music has become so professional because you know, in history, when people needed music, wanted music, what did they do? They made music, <laughs> they sang themselves. And I, I'm glad we've got radios and professionals and things like this, to, but it comes at a cost. Today, when we want music and our soul needs it, a lot of times what we do, we turn on the radio and we let professionals sing for us. There is something that is needed for us giving voice, for us singing. And, and, and I know that you may think it's strange, but I am telling you, you engage in this, in sorrow, sing to the Lord songs of lament. You're able to fellowship with him in a way that he created. He made this and it will be medicinal to you. Sing truths in times of hurt. Number six, continually remind yourself of the many promises of God. Remind yourself over and over and over again, like Psalm 42 is doing to himself. Like, why are you in despair? Think about the truths here. There is one critical possession in the heart that makes all of the difference. All of the difference. It's what really everything hinges on of whether we will heal or not. And it is this. Hope. It is hope. Hope is the one thing that is the difference maker. This is why in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're told not to grieve like the world. The world grieves without hope. 
When a Christian grieves, we have hope. But to have real hope in the heart, it does take work. Applying it to our hearts so that we live with hope, it is not easy. And it doesn't come by just coming and hearing sermons. Remember, we've talked about the work that needs to be happening. You need to be sweated wet by the time you leave a sermon because of all of the internal work of applying what's going on there. Hope takes work to recall, rehearse, remember, apply the truths so that my heart is in the healthy place that I should be because I know the truths of the gospel. And then number seven, this is the last one, fight your bitterness and bless the name of God. Job demonstrated this for us and it's been recorded for all ages and it's one of the most important places in all of the Bible. Job endured his sorrows upon sorrows and what he did there in Job 1, it it is so significant. Do Do you remember Job's reaction? He's been hit with all of this news of all of this sorrow, 10 children dying in one day, sorrow upon sorrow. And what did Job do? He tore his clothing, an expression of grief. He shaved his head, sitting in his his sorrow, expression of his sorrow. And he came before the Lord and fell on his face. And you remember the words that he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Christian, it is one of the greatest victories of your life. It is one of the most monumental moments that you will ever have. It is a moment that brings the angels to rejoice and crushes your enemy. When through tears and grief and heartache, you call God righteous and you bless his name. Overcoming our temptation to bitterness, it's a big deal. And, and Christian, again, like I said earlier, we need to say it, not just, not just nod our heads that it is good. We need to say it. There needs to be a moment in our grief that we get on our knees and we say the words to God. You you have to understand your enemy who hates you pointed his finger and said, you let me touch him. He'll curse you to your face. It is a monumental victory to fall on your face. And I I don't think we can improve on Job's words. (laughs) So maybe we just quote them and we say them to God. You are righteous in what you've done. I bless your name. Here's number three. Third point in the overall. We're done with the list of seven. Now here's the third and final point quickly. Healing is righteous and good. We started that there is one kind of temptation that grief is not ungodly because there can be the confusion that it is. But there's a different temptation as well. And so we need to make clear healing is righteous and good. All through the New Testament, we are called to rejoice in the Lord. The identity of a believer is one of joy, hope, okay? Sons and daughters with inheritance, that is our identity. And what that means is a mournful identity is unbecoming of a Christian. And the reason that I tell you this in a message on grief, a message where I'm telling you that Grief is not ungodly and you need to give vent to these things. But at the same time, I'm sailing, I'm saying not to adopt it as an identity. So the reason I say it in the midst of a message like this is we are to grieve. We are to process, but we need to know what the goal is. We need to know where it is that we're seeking to head. What are we aiming for? We are aiming for healing. God wants to bring us to a place of health and joy where we can laugh again. God wants to bring us to a place of strength. It is not God's will for us to adopt a permanent identity of grief. So I say that it's not a call to rush. It's not a call if you're, for somebody who's going through grief to be like, hey, hurry up. You know, your spouse died, it's been three months. Come on, get over it by now. No, that's not reality. Many Christians who have lost a spouse will say that it was about seven months of pretty intense grief. 
it's, it's a long time. And so it's not a call to hurry up, but all the way through, we need to know where the goal is that we're trying to get to. And that is to come to healing. Statistics tell us that when a husband and a wife lose a child, so this is the, the statistics, this does not mean it's the will of God and it ought not be the case in the church. But statistically in, in culture, when a husband and a wife lose a child, most often they divorce. Now, why is that? We could probably point to a number of reasons, but at least one of the main ones, and I have heard it out of the lips, is that some feel guilty about ever coming to happiness again. Some wives who, who lose their husbands, they, they fear that if they ever come to a place where they laugh again or, or even think about remarrying, that it would be betraying their past loved one. And so we do need to understand that healing is good and righteous. You're not betraying your loved ones who have died. And, and those husbands and wives who have lost children, when, when they come to a place that they feel guilty about ever moving on to joy again, what, what happens there? If they feel guilty about laughing or even marital intimacy, that will wreck the marriage. You, you need to know that God wants us to heal and come to a place of joy and that it honors him and it is good. And what will heal you, Christian, is hope. Listen, a healed heart is not one that is hunky-dory skipping around all the time. It is one that is filled with hope. A, a, a spiritual giant, you'll, you'll notice about this when you meet them. Spiritual giants don't skip around like all the world has never had a problem. There are scars. They might limp. Do you remember when, when Jacob wrestled with the Lord? He limped for the rest of his life. The Lord chose to keep that. Every step that Jacob took for the rest of his life, he remembered that. Healing doesn't mean forgetting. Healing doesn't mean skipping around like there's never been a problem in the world, but it does mean a heart that is filled and overflowing with hope. Hope. A heart that is filled with hope is a heart that honors God and is one that is useful to the kingdom. You will find that after suffering, you are more prepared to be useful than you ever were before. And a lot of times, many, many times more suffering and yes, even grief and sorrow, they are tools in the hands of our creator, our savior to mold us into what he wants us to be. And there is a special kind of glory that we give to God when we worship and fellowship with him through our afflictions. Now, I've been talking about this and talking about the fact that we have hope in Christ. Let, let me clarify if any of you don't know what I mean by that. Contrary to popular opinion, uh, what the world is always saying, you have sinned against God. Your sin means that there is punishment that you deserve. There really is a place called hell. There is a wrath of God that comes to all sins. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came to pay the penalty of sins for all who will come to him. God now offers all to come and receive eternal life if you will come and place your faith in the Lord Jesus. You must be saved. You must be saved. Place your faith in Christ and what happens is you get the assurance that you are right with God, forgiven of your sins and have eternal life because of what he has done. That's what hope is. The confident assurance of what is to come. Only those who are in Christ have this. So if you have not turned to him like this, we welcome you. Christ calls and commands you, come believe and be saved. Be baptized to show your submission to Christ. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask God that you will help us to take these truths and to work them into our understanding of this world. Father, again and again, it's amazing how much we have to remind ourselves this is a cursed world and no longer a blessed world. We're waiting on the glory to come. Father, I pray help us. For those in our congregation who have grief and sorrow, we pray for healing. For those who have past hurts, I ask, oh God, that you will bring them to greater strength. Bless us, O oh Lord, who are waiting on days of grief, that it is to come.
We lift up Marcus and Jordan to you. We ask that you come and heal. We ask God for, for Jordan physically that you will care for her. Father, we pray for their hearts, Lord, that you will mend and comfort and bless and help us as a church family to supply the ministry that we ought. Give us grace, O God, as we dismiss. We pray your blessing and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.